Support for Father David Abernethy and his ministry at the Pittsburgh Oratory of St. Philip Neri comes entirely from the donations of community members and listeners like you. The creation of future groups and podcast episodes depends on your commitment and generosity. We humbly ask that you consider a monthly gift of $10 to the Pittsburgh Oratory in support of Father David and his work. To make this or any gift, please visit www.thepittsburghoratory.org, click the Donate button, and write Father David in the notes section. You can also make a recurring or one-time donation directly through Podbean. Your commitment and ministry-sustaining support are greatly appreciated. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus, and we're picking up tonight with a new step, step number two on detachment on page 60 of the text if you're following along. And again, just as a reminder, the first three steps all have to do with the kind of the renunciation of the world or the break from the world, in particular that the monk would make entering into the desert. So, you know, we've, we are looking at detachment now, and then following that will be exile. And, you know, some things, certainly we've heard of detachment. Exile, I think, will perhaps be something a little bit new for us in terms of reflecting upon what that means uh, for the monk and what that would mean for us, too, in terms of our living within the world and what impact that would have on our spiritual life. And even what's said here about detachment, I think we have to read it in a discerning way. You know, obviously, these were men who were leaving the world altogether and entering into the heart of the desert uh, and of Egypt. And uh, and uh, and so, you know, we want to read it through that lens while seeking also to apply their wisdom. So, again, we're starting on page 60, step number two on detachment. The man who really loves the Lord who has made a real effort to find the future kingdom, who is really pained by his sins, who is really mindful of eternal torment and judgment, who really lives in fear of his own departure, will not love, care, or worry about money or possessions or parents or worldly glory or friends or brothers or anything at all on earth. But having shaken off all ties with earthly things, and having stripped himself of all his cares, and having come to hate his own flesh, and having stripped himself of everything, he will follow Christ without anxiety or hesitation, always looking heavenward and expecting help from there, according to the word of the saint. My soul hath cleaved after thee, and according to that other ever memorable man, who said, I have not wearied of following thee, nor have I desired the day or rest of man, O Lord. So speaking here of David in the Psalms and the prophet Jeremiah, and so rather strongly stated right from the beginning. And I think always the lens through which we would read something like this and interpret it would be Christ himself and what is offered to us in and through him. And even in the scriptures, we hear Christ himself, and John Climacus will make reference to the gospel many times throughout this step, Uh, but the kind of absolute demand that Christ makes upon the soul. And, uh, And so as we read this, we have to keep in mind that what we are being called to is, uh, not to follow an ideology or philosophy or set of teachings, but the person of Christ, but also one who has embraced our humanity and given himself to us for our salvation, freed us from our sin, but also has drawn us into the very life of the most holy trinity. And so he asks for unconditional commitment, 
absolute commitment because he offers absolute and unconditional love to us. And God has given us what is most precious to him. And for those who understand what we, they have received in Christ, the preciousness of that gift, then they are going to have no anxiety about the things of this world, the losses of this world, and even of death itself uh, holds no fear for them. And, uh, and so it's, it's not a hatred of the self in the sense of a negative anthropology, you know, seeing the body as evil or the world itself as evil, but acknowledging the fact that we are often, because of our sin, drawn away from the participation in the glory of God that we've been, been called to in and through Christ. And uh, I've mentioned here a number of times how Christ himself differs from some of the Old Testament prophets. And we even see parallels there, especially with the prophet Elijah calling Elisha to take his place. And uh, just to repeat it again, uh, if you remember when he calls Elisha, Elisha asked to go back to say goodbye to his parents, to kiss his parents goodbye. And Elijah says to him, who am I to you? Go do what you need to do. Take care of your affairs. In other words, despite the fact that he's a prophet, he cannot make an absolute demand uh, upon uh, Elisha in, in that way, that he allows him to go and do what he needs to do uh, to bid his parents for, farewell. Uh, whereas when it, it comes to Christ, uh, our understanding of that call uh, has to be radically different. And I think we see it in the apostles themselves, even though that they might not grasp it, the one who they encounter is the Lord of life, the governor of love, uh, the one who opens up to us the, the very experience of God. And so in their encounter with him, and when he says, come follow me, they immediately drop everything, their entire livelihood, uh, their father in, in one case, Matthew, the tax collector, his business, uh, they all drop everything in and through this encounter with Christ. And, uh, you know, at that point, certainly they might not have understood exactly what they were doing and why, but I think it was the encounter with the living God that they had in Christ that allowed them to do that so freely and almost without question. And, uh, and it's for the same reason that Christ then can make these, this kind of call uh, for the monks and why they would see, see things in the way that they did, that part of their commitment was to give themselves over to God fully in mind and in body and to hold absolutely nothing back from him. And so what they came to see, even in making that commitment, was the subtle pull back to the world and how even uh, the evil one would tempt them to let go of their commitment uh, to, to, to live the monastic life or to live the life of solitude. The subtle ways that he would draw them back to the things of this world that are good in and of themselves, that he would stir up their emotions or make them feel that they could have a greater impact upon the world around them as a way of drawing them away from this kind of absolute commitment. And I think what we see in looking at them, as we hold them up, and their lives and their teachings, we see also what goes on in our own hearts on a day-to-day -day basis, the subtle ways that we often will choose ourself, our own ego, the things of this world, our possessions, our opinions, our judgments over that of Christ and over that of love and loving others. And this is where I think the Father's profound provide us with a radical challenge. You know, how is it that we detach ourselves from the things we value the most, especially ourselves, our egos? And uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, this is very difficult. You know, someone can, you know, say something to us, look at us strange, insult us, and immediately we want to reclaim for ourselves our dignity. And in that, we show on some level that we do not understand our dignity in Christ, that no one and no thing in this world can take away from us, uh, no matter how they might treat us, and even death itself 
cannot take from, from us what, what has been given to us by Christ. And this is what the fathers are trying to magnify and what John Climacus in particular in this step is seeking to magnify. Okay, anything from this first paragraph that stands out that you'd like to explore a little bit more? Okay, so number two, after our call, which comes from God and not man, we have left all that is mentioned above, and it is a great disgrace for us to worry about anything that cannot help us in the hour of our need, that is to say, the hour of our death. For as the Lord said, the means, this means looking back and not being fit for the kingdom of heaven. Knowing how fickle we novices are and how easily we turn to the world through visiting or being with worldly people, when someone said to him, suffer me first to go bury my father, our Lord replied, let the dead bury the dead. And I know this statement really is jarring to people. Let the dead bury the dead. It's so coarse and such a rough statement. Uh, but only he who is the Lord of life can say that, that we can be so free from the things that typically concern us as human beings, free from worries, from free, free from fear, free from the, the concern that death is the end and is the end of our experience of the other, others that we love that to come into this relationship with he who is life, we, not, we need not have fear of or anxiety about anything at all. And anything that we might lose within this world will be restored to us as we hear a hundredfold uh, within the kingdom, that in Christ exists all. And he's the fullness of life and love. So what, what is it that we are to fear? What is it that we think that this world can take from us that we do not possess in Christ. And it's precisely in their radical detachment from the, the things of this world that the, the fathers you know, shine a, a light upon this for us. We who so often struggle, he says here, as like novices, our hearts can be fickle. Our, our, our hearts and our minds are so changeable from one moment to another. We can feel this deep love for Christ, this deep commitment to him. But the, the moment that we are faced with something that is challenging, uncomfortable, or uh, sacrifices to be made, we have to set aside our will, then it can become another qu question very quickly for us where we are willing to set aside the truth or the demands of love uh, for the sake of preserving something for ourselves. And sometimes it can be rather small things. I mean, they, they saw in the desert that they could fight over a piece of wood, you know, that, you know, having left the world, how foolish, you know, something like that would be. Robin, you had your hand up there for a minute. Did you have a comment or question? Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I don't know. I was hitting all kinds of things. Sorry. Okay, that's okay. All right, so number three, after our renunciation of the world, the demon suggests to us that we should envy those living in the world who give alms and console the needy and be sorry for ourselves as deprived of these virtues. The aim of our foes is by false humility, either to make us return to the world or if we remain monks to plunge us into despair. It is possible to belittle those living in the world out of conceit, and it is also possible to disparage them behind their backs in order to avoid despair and obtain hope. So a very interesting paragraph that the demons begin to work on the monks by suggesting what, how much more they could be doing within the world that would foster virtue within them. And the obvious one comes forward. The, the care of the poor. And so they begin to think of those living in the world and begin to envy them. Look, I could be actively 
helping others or consoling others rather than living in the desert and struggling to maintain my focus upon God, entering into this solitude, living in this exile, I could be doing so much more within the world than holding to this, this commitment. And so the, the devil strikes at the root of their identity and of the vow that they made to give themselves to Christ in this unconditional fashion. And this is what's most important for them. It's, it's what for us the contemplative life would be, like a, a Carmelite nun. They would face, I think, very similar temptations at times that they had em have embraced the cloistered life, which means moving away from family and not participating in the things of the, of the world. And so temptations in the midst of the solitude of their day of the isolation that they might experience, even though living in a community, uh, the difficulty with, you know, the sort of the norm of day-to-day -day life, even the mundane nature of it, uh, the demons can suggest the same things to them as well. Why are you doing this? You could be in the world, you could have a family, or you could be preaching, teaching. Think of all the people that you could win to the faith if you let go of this offer of yourself to God in this, in this radical way. Think of all the good that you could do concretely within the world. And I think what this does for us, it, it emphasizes the fact that Christianity is not a religion. You know, that we are drawn into the very life of the Holy Trinity. You know, it's God manifesting himself to us and giving himself to us and elevating our, our very being as, as human beings to share in his own divine life. And so to think about it simply in terms of what we could do in the world or what we could create in the world by our own hands, to compare that to that which endures unto eternity uh, is foolhardy. And there is this temptation, I, I think, for Christians at times towards a kind of activism uh, in this regard, where we can lose sight of the intimate relationship that we are to have and seek with God, and also lose sight of the eternal life that we are seeking to participate in and already have a share in now, that we can shift our focus onto the world, even onto good things. And uh, God can slowly be pushed out to the margins. And so even those living in the world who are called to you know, a more active life, can emphasize those things to such an extent that prayer begins to be neglected, the relationship with God, the interior life, what is going on with one's, within one's heart, the struggle with the passions, growth and virtue, the depth of prayer. Christianity can be slowly turned into a kind of activism or social work. And I've told some of you this story, Mother Teresa was here in Pittsburgh, I think it was back in the mid seventies and gave a talk here at the university. And someone referred to her work or referred to her as a social worker. And immediately she stopped the conversation and she said, no, 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 you know, I, I'm not a social worker. You know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian and I do these things. I care for others because I see quite clearly Christ within them, that it is he, and his love that I'm responding to, who dwells within my neighbor, that what she's engaging in is not simply social work, that certainly that has value in and of itself, but her, what is motivating her, uh, was motivating her was the, the love of God and her ability to see God present within the other. And, you know, the, the focus on activism can slowly make us lose that perspective. Uh, and it, it can even be true, I think, in the ascetical life, where we make that an end in itself. 
So trying to live this life of perfection and ordering our life and struggling with the passions and even developing our prayer life, strangely enough, uh, we, we can do that and lose sight of God or lose sight of loving the other or loving him in the other. And, uh, and so Christianity becomes this climbing up a mountain of virtue rather than giving ourselves as Christ gave himself in love an emptying, an outpouring of self and love. Uh, kenosis, self-emptying. This is what we are called to. We are given this love of God in order that we might empty ourselves, pour ourselves out as he did for us. And so the grace that is given to us through the sacramental life, through our baptism, through confession, through the Holy Eucharist, is, is not it's not sort of like supercharging our natural virtues, you know, that what we are being instilled with is the virtue of Christ himself. And his strength becomes our strength. His capacity to love becomes our capacity to love. And so we are called to, to love and give ourselves, not in a heroic sense, in the same, same way that, say, a soldier does on the battlefield. I think all of us would acknowledge that, you know, this ultimate sacrifice that is made there for the love of something greater, country, family, uh, and for the greater good. But, you know, what we are giving ourselves to is, is, is God himself. And the one who can call us to leave behind everything in order to, to follow him. There's this always a radical personal element about Christianity for us, that it is about Christ. And so, you know, when we've talked about prayer, for example, that how there are some similarities, say, with Eastern uh, uh, non-Christian non religions, you know, the saying of a mantra, the kind of peace that it brings. And so the Jesus prayer can bring about sort of the same thing, even sort of has the same kind of quality to it. But what we aren't, what we are seeking is not a kind of inner peace or emptiness or inner stillness. Those might be fruits of our prayer, but ultimately what we are seeking is to enter into this relationship of intimacy with the living God. The Christ is always the focus of that prayer. There's always a, the other is the focus of that prayer, as well as the focus of all the things that we, we do within our, our life. Ren. I'm particularly moved by the insight at the end of the last paragraph, which states that we can be tempted to disparage those in the world in order to avoid despair. Fascinating that not possessing the faith and love necessary to find value in our life in Christ, we can turn to disparagement of others in an attempt to build ourselves up. I feel this happens a lot in our day. I thought that too, too. you know, there, it's amazing how psychologically astute the Desert Fathers were. And you think about the, the part that you pointed out in this paragraph that, uh, that one can disparage others to avoid this kind of internal despair over this lack of confidence in one's own identity. So one can actually begin to say, oh, those fools living in the world, they're really not giving themselves over fully to Christ uh, or as completely, you know, and uh, so disparage them with this kind of conceit, but that conceit is actually rooted in a deep despair. And I think you're right. I think that does take place a lot within the world. I think this kind of hypercriticalism that we see, uh, especially in, social, in realms of social media, but I think in, often in our day-to-day -day interactions with others, that we lose sight of the other. And one has to wonder, okay, wh where does all of that anger come from? And this tendency to compare the self to the other. Uh, other than uh, a, a lack of sense of identity and confidence in it. And ultimately, I think what the fathers point out here, a kind of despair, what creates within us the need to tear the other apart, except 
you know, uh, uh, you know, a weak sense of self. And the further one moves away from Christ, uh, and especially one who's embraced a life like this, for example, who has left, made all these sacrifices, and then loses faith, you know, in the sense that they lose sight of Christ and the reason behind this gift of self, then you could see how very quickly that they could project that internal despair onto those living in the world. Your life is worthless. And so it often turns out in the world that those who are really take a kind of morbid delight in tearing people apart, they're are, are revealing something very important about themselves. You know, anyone who has a strong self, self-identity, especially those whose identity is rooted in Christ, is not going to be reactive to, and this is what we'll hear laid out before us here in this step and in the next, uh, there's going to be a kind of freedom from, you know, being broken down by insults and the critiques of others. Because if our identity is rooted in Christ, if we see what we've become in him, what is somebody telling us we're a fool or calling into question, you know, the way that we, we live our life? What, what is that going to mean to us if we are fully immersed in that life and have this kind of, of invincible faith that comes from being rooted in that life in Christ? Josie follows up with, so this is why the why behind detachment is so important. Yes, because, you know, I think we can see detachment as simply a hatred of the things of this world and that we're casting them off. Uh, and we can do that in the same kind of conceited way, you know, that we could become Luddites or minimalists you know, and so we begin to think, ah, you know, this is all just a distraction, which in reality it might be, but we could be using that simply to build up our own ego. We're not like others. We have a flip phone rather than a smartphone. <laughs> and so uh, to put it in its most basic level, and you think how easy are our thoughts move in that, that direction. Sam Rodriguez, some phrases here that come to mind are, I must decrease so that Jesus may increase, or that it is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That's a wonderful one. That we are emptying ourselves of self, yes, but we are emptying ourselves unto the fullness of him. And thus, if within us, while living through us, calls us out into the world for a mission, then that's radically different from the enemy shaming us for not following him the way the enemy says that we should during an attack. Because if rightly, rightfully lived, it is he who is stepping into the world through our yes to him. Our yes to him continuing his incarnation through our yes, even if it will inevitably be within the context of our own personal brokenness, could be in the desert or the desert of the city, or in the concrete realities of a present moment, where there is a call to radical love, whatever that moment, that call might look like. It belongs to him, not to us. Just we belong to him, not ourselves. Wow, beautiful, beautifully said uh, on every level. And I think it's true. And I, I like your uh, focusing in here on the, the, the desert, uh, the, the city, the desert, because the, in reality, this is what we are all called to, you know, this living for Christ fully, holding nothing back from him, whatever our state in this world might be, understanding that in him is found the fullness. And so if he is to call us into marriage or to live and work in the world and to serve others, we are responding to that fullness. God's yes to us is echoed by our saying yes to him in whatever circumstances we might find ourselves. And I think that's a good way of seeing it, you know, Christ as being God's yes to us on the most profound level. 
God saying, yes, I love you with an everlasting love. And so I hold nothing back from you. I give you what is most precious to my, to, who, to my very being. I give you my only begotten son. And our response to that, having received that fullness and being drawn into union, what we are really saying when we say yes is we are offering Christ yes to the Father. You know, whenever we unite our will to Christ's will or we unite our sacrifices to his sacrifices, they are perfected. So God sees and loves in us what he sees and loves in, uh, in his only begotten son, as we hear in one of the prefaces of the Mass. So, and God looking upon us sees his only begotten son. And so when we, this is something incredibly hopeful for us because in our weak, weakness, in our brokenness, in our poverty, even in our sin, when we turn toward God in repentance and are united to Christ, what God sees is his only son. You know, that which is weak within us finds perfection in Christ. And that which is sinful is wiped away by his precious blood shed for us on the cross. And so once again, this is why we would have no fear or anxiety about anything at all. Or uh, in the face of the trials that we experience in our particular station in life, we can say yes to those things rather than deep within us saying no and scrambling in whatever way we possibly can to get away from them or to avoid them or to escape them even for a short period of time. So part of understanding the, the Desert Fathers, I think really is understanding the incarnation, what God has done you know, in taking our flesh upon himself. It transforms our very understanding of life, of creation, but especially of who we are as human beings. Okay. So are we on number three or four? Okay. Let us listen to what the Lord said to the young man who had fulfilled nearly all the commandments. One thing thou lackest, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and become a beggar who receives alms from others. Having resolved to run our race with ardor and fervor, let us consider carefully how the Lord gave judgment concerning all living in the world, speaking of even those who are alive as dead. When he said to someone, leave those in the world who are dead to bury the dead in body. His wealth did not in the least prevent the young man from being baptized. So it is in vain that someone, some say that the Lord commanded him to sell what he had for the sake of baptism. This is more than sufficient to give us the most firm assurance of the surpassing glory of our vow. And so what Christ is offer, you know, offering this young man was everything. And I think often we, we focus on what is sacrificed. And I think the young man did as well, you know, that he lived a very good life. In one of the gospels, it says Christ looked upon him with love, uh, that he lived a good and virtuous life, but he had also uh, gained for himself through his labors, uh, a certain amount of wealth. And when Christ says, give it all away, and come follow me, he's not calling him uh, simply to shed the things of this world, but more importantly, he's saying, let go of that which is less for everything in order to take hold of he who is the fullness of life and love who stands before you now. Come follow me. And, you know, it wasn't, I think the point that he's trying to make here that uh, it wasn't his commanding the young man to be baptized. You know, it was commanding him to do what the monk is doing and responding to. It's letting go of everything with this confidence that one is being called 
by the one who offers everything and who is everything. That Christ is the fullness of life, love, of nourishment. We've heard this week, I am the bread of life. And so Christ is telling us, uh, I am the one who can satisfy, satiate the, the deepest hunger of the human heart. And I alone can do that. There's nothing within this world that can offer the, the fullness that the human heart seeks for. And it is the most bold and radical statement. And that's why people would tear their garments and accuse them of blasphemy for saying it or leave his company because he was making absolute claims of himself. He's telling them, I'm, I am God. I am the bread of life. You know, that he's something far more than Moses giving manna to people within the desert. He's saying, I am the bread of life. I am what sustains all life. And so again, it's in this context that we can understand the radical demands of the Lord. The radical demands are made in order that he might offer them the, the most radical of, of, of loves. They empty themselves out in order that they might be made full by him. St. Francis, I think in the Western tradition, experienced this in his own life, you know, that his willingness to let go of his hold on what he had within his hands, what he had position of in and through his family, in order to give himself over fully to Christ, he began to see, offered him uh, a share in the divine life, even now, that he began to experience something of the peace, the joy of the kingdom, and a hope again, that is invincible. And so he could do it without question. Doesn't mean it wasn't difficult or that it didn't cost him greatly or that those in his family or among his friends understood it, they didn't. And we hear again and again, you know, saints, you know, families, you know, even making use of prostitutes, trying to draw them back to the world or imprisoning them to keep them from going to enter into a, into a religious community. You know, all because I think of a fear that they would be losing something or would be unhappy within this world. Okay, let's move on. It is worth investigating why those who live in the world and spend their life in vigils, fast labors and hardships, when they withdraw from the world and begin the monastic life, as if at some trial or on the practicing ground, no longer continue the discipline of their former spurious and sham asceticism. I've seen how in the world, they planted many different plants of the virtues, which were watered by vainglory as by an underground sewage pipe and were hoed by ostentation and for manure were heaped with praise. But when transplanted to a desert soil, inaccessible to people of the world, and so not manured with the foul-smelling water of vanity, they withered at once. For water-loving plants are not such as to produce fruit in hard and arid training fields. Wow. John doesn't pull many punches. But what, what he puts forward to us here is incredibly powerful, because he's saying, it's interesting that a person living in the world can embrace a life of incredible asceticism. And he lays it all out here. They can be embracing vigils, fasting, labors, all kinds of hardships. Uh, but what is driving it is not the love, the desire for God and to give the self over completely to him, but rather self-esteem, ego. And so he says the moment that they are removed from that environment where they're no longer being fed uh, by that you know, manure or by that water that they wither up when they are really in the desert where, where they are really doing battle, spiritual battle, and there's no one there to praise them. So all of a sudden worldly consolation dries up 
and their desire for the ascetic life and their understanding of the reason for it dries up as well. And it's the, would be the most pitiable existence if you think about it. And there have been many monks, you know, both in the desert and those who've lived in monasteries who were, you know, for whom their life becomes routine. And it would be very easy to slip into that, that there is a kind of security and safety in that. And so they can live the monastic life you know, on this certain level, but they lose that zeal, that desire for God that may be even initially uh, stirred within them, the desire to give themselves over in such a way. But once the enthusiasm of that is gone, as well as the encouragement, I see it all the time, you know, somebody says that they're interested in the priesthood or the religious life, people go nuts over them. It's like, they, they haven't lived a day of it in their life. And all of a sudden they're ready for canonization, you know? <laughs> and, you know, you could live in the monastery for a couple of weeks and all of a sudden you realize, oh my gosh, you know, it's not what I expected. And, uh, and so, you know, John is saying, we have to be very careful here. There is a sham asceticism and very easily it can be twisted around to do what so often happens within the religious life. It is to serve the ego, to serve the self. The religious identity can be incredibly provocative. You know, that we can want that for ourselves, to see ourselves in a certain light, or to have others see us in a certain light as well. And when that disappears, or we, where we become the object of contempt, of insult, you know, uh, or suspicion, you know, then, you know, the, the desire for this kind of deep prayer of gift of self over to God can, can disappear. This is a tough thing, I think, for priests in our day. You know, I've, I've had sad conversations with people, you know, after the scandal, you know, erupted back in the early 2000s. Uh, you know, I've had people say, you know, I'm sorry, Father, but, you know, every time I look up on the altar, my first thought is pedophile. And it's a hard thing, you know, because that identity to which you are drawn has been so darkened by this corruption that there's no glory in it at all. People would sooner spit on my shoes than say, no, how are you doing, Father? I mean, it's not the priesthood of old, you know, in, this, in the sense of being put on a pedestal. In fact, it's the opposite nowadays. And so John is saying that, you know, the moment we experience hardship or somebody experiences hardship in the desert, they're going to run, you know, when they really see what it is to give oneself over to Christ withholding nothing. Robin Greco, are you just pressing buttons or? Okay, there you go. Wow, six is what those of us today would call a mic drop moment, no beating around the bush and ever so true. Absolutely, you know, a, a mic drop moment, you know, sort of where you drop the mic and walk off the stage because what you said can't be followed by anything else. And uh, that's sort of true, although John does. He keeps it going through the entire book. So it's one mic drop after another. But what is impressive about John is the unvarnished truth that he presents us with over and over again. And he draws us around it and he reveals those deepest secret parts of the human mind and heart to us. It doesn't matter if we're we're monks, desert monks or not, or whatever our station is. I think over and over again, we are shown that fickleness of heart that he talked about earlier, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, how far the ego will go in order to protect itself and build itself up. Deborah said, what? You mean monastic life isn't all incense and Gregorian chant, gardening and making coffee and beer? No way. Uh, if you visit a, the interior life of a monastery is curious and uh, 
It can be filled with hypochondriasis, <laughs> uh, you know, because people can develop a kind of sensitivity to everything, you know, and uh, because you're living in that silence and you can be hyper aware of what's going on internally. And so it can be, you know, there can be all these quirks, eccentric behaviors, you know, arguments that arise over stupid things, pettiness, ego inserts itself. It's a battleground like other battlegrounds. And, you know, what people in marriages see takes place in monasteries as well. And when that identity drops out and the practice of the life of deep prayer and where humility uh, is gone, then the life of the community can really st struggle and even fall apart. It's interesting, you know, Philip Neary wanted each house to be autonomous and that no house would really come to the aid of another house. You know, that one has to sort of trust in the will of God, that throughout the ages, one oratory would really flourish at a certain time, depending upon the, the men that were in its walls. But at, at another time, it could fall into destitute and all of a sudden close down. And because that could be the fruit that that particular house is producing. And I think there's a kind of wisdom there in Philip Neary. He didn't want something to be artificially propped up when it was not bearing fruit that was pleasing to God. And so if a house became corrupt, then it wouldn't take very long for the internal life to fall apart, for people to see through that, for the ministry to stop bearing fruit. And so perhaps fall apart altogether. And it compels people then on a day-to-day -day basis to evaluate their life and to say, am I, am I living it fully? Am I helping to support others in their vocation? Am I seeking to support my own by living it fully? And so that's why he did not bind us by vow either. And that was true of these you know, monks in the desert. You know, I think there, there weren't vows in the early, early times. These were men driven by the desire for God who entered into this world seeking him, not so much because of external, you know, I think they knew that, you know, the, those external things that we can say to us can, or can e easily be broken and so lack confidence within themselves in that regard. I just posted a little thing today by Philip Neary saying that, you know, it was often before he would receive communion, he said, God, guard and protect me this day, for, for otherwise I will betray you. And it's amazing how that uh, resonated with people online. You know, well, if St. Philip had, could say this to himself every day, then I better be saying it to myself every day, that outside of the grace and the protection of God, I'm capable of the betrayal of Judas or worse. And so I can have no illusions about my life. And so all of this, I think when we gather it all in together, you begin to see, you know, humility, truthful living, this willingness, what we hear in the Evergatinos on Monday of why they would have the novices reveal their thoughts to the elders so fully and freely in order that healing might come. It's by drawing these attitudes, ideas, thoughts out into the open that healing comes. We are very capable of hiding things from ourselves. It's not always so easy to hide things from others who often see ourselves with a greater clarity than we see ourselves. Isn't that unfortunate? <laughs> ah, I'm exposed. Okay, number six. Oh, Carol, can't help comparing this to adoration and attention and expectant mother receives versus the relentless hidden self-sacrifice of new parenthood. That's right. You know, all of a sudden, everybody disappears <laughs> after like the baptism and all that kind of stuff. And you're at home, you know, changing diapers and taking care of the family. And it is the hidden life. And it's funny that, you know, Climacus talks about this, that one of the fruits of detachment and exile is the hidden life. 
that one is engaging in the life of love and a virtue, not because people see it, but because you love and you, you, you value that. And how true that is for parents, you know, the, how much their kids never see or ever even know, know about, you know, the sacrifices that existed early on. Okay, number six. It's worth investigating. I'm sorry, no, we're on number seven. The man who has come to hate the world has escaped sorrow, but he who has an attachment to anything visible is not yet delivered from grief. For how is it possible not to be sad at the loss of something we love? We need to have great vigilance in all things, but we must give our whole attention to this above everything else. I've seen many people in the world who by reason of cares, worries, occupations, and vigils avoided the wild desires of their body. But after entering the monastic life and in complete freedom from anxiety, they polluted themselves in a pitiful way by the movements of the body. So, you know, the vigilance that someone has in this life and detachment from the things of this world gives this true freedom from sorrow. Uh, not in terms of experiencing the difficulties of life in the world, but free from being driven to despair about it. And so he says, we need to have great vigilance in this uh, and give our whole attention to it. Because he said, I've, I've seen people in the world who are driven in, you know, by their occupation, their cares, and the sacrifices that they have to make. They're driven by, by those things, this kind of natural asceticism that they're involved in on a daily basis, that they are no longer plagued by the passions that often plague us because they are giving themselves over so fully and radically, say to the care of another or to a child, an infant, and uh, they're pouring themselves out. Whereas a monk could live in the desert and free himself from some of the sorrows of the world or some of the, the worries or cares that are tied to that, but then all of a sudden be overcome by his passions. And it's because he lacks this kind of vigilance that he en has entered into the desert simply seeking escape from reality rather than entering into the desert to enter into reality fully in order to enter into the very life of God fully. And, you know, there are a lot of ways that we could do that. I mean, monks aren't the only ones capable of doing that. We can find all kinds of ways of escaping reality or moving away from reality to try to free ourselves from some of the sorrows that we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's when we stop saying that yes to God. You know, in these little ways, we begin to say no because it's humbling. We see our poverty, our weakness, our mistakes, our sins, uh, what we're capable of doing in that sin, how we treat people. And if we're able to say yes to God, to all of those things, and turn toward him, that's where we find freedom and mercy and strength and grace. If we say no and step away from reality, to hide from all those things and so immerse ourselves in the things of this world, you know, we have momentary, a momentary respite from those things, but not true freedom, not true freedom. Eventually we find ourselves more enslaved than others. This is another paragraph, I think, where we see the, the psychological insight of the Desert Fathers, that he could see very well here how the human mind can work, that we want to avoid reality. Who's the poet? I think it's T.S. Eliot said that the, as human beings, one can only, ex, only uh, experience so much reality. Like if we experience too much at one time, we're overcome by it. We can stand only so much reality. That's why we seek to escape it. And we've invented millions of ways to escape it. Whereas for us as Christians, you know, when we find ourselves overwhelmed or where there's deep sorrow or we're carrying a heavy cross, 
you know, rather than moving away from that reality, we take that reality and we bring bring it with we bring it uh, to our relationship with Christ, in order that He might illuminate it, that He might bring healing where need, healing is needed. That he might bring strength. It's a hard thing. I think it's to, to step toward reality, especially when we find ourselves beaten up by it and beleaguered by it and weary and just so tired, you know, carrying it for years, you know, or we feel like Sisyphus pushing that stupid rock up the hill and having it roll down over and over again and then get, you know, pushing it back up. You know, you, at some point you say, I'm just going to leave this stinking rock at the bottom, <laughs> bottom of the hill. I've, ha I've had it. And so we can give up on, on, on life. And then, then we become a monk in a different kind of way. We, we, uh, we step into a kind of deep isolation. You know, and, you know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years and, you know, there th can be a pretty powerful temptation because that isolation can alter one's mental state where you sort of step out of, of reality. You know, you're existing, but on a very minimal level. And there's some people that, you know, after certain losses, never, never come out of that. You know, they're never able to engage others or life in, in, in any way. And, uh, and so, you know, in our life, you know, simply on a, fun, on a basic level, psychological level, as well as in the spiritual level, there is no stagnant position. You know, it's not as though we stay in, in one place. You know, if we aren't moving towards reality or towards life, then we're going to be drawn along by something else that simulates that or appears to be that to us, uh, but ultimately cannot give it to us. You know, that we're always going to feel this kind of precious ache, this void within us, an urgent longing that only God can fill, but we will seek to fill with, with other things. Let us play, pay close attention to ourselves so that we are not deceived into thinking that we are following the straight and narrow way when in actual fact we are keeping the wide and broad way. The following will show you what the narrow way means. Mortification of the stomach, all night standing, water in moderation, short rations of bread, purifying uh, drought of dishonor, sneers, derision, insults, the cutting out of one's own will, patience in annoyances, unmurmuring endurance of scorn, disregard of insults, and the habit, when wronged, of bearing it sturdily, even when slandered, of not being indignant, when humiliated, not, being, not to be angry, when condemned, to be humble. Blessed are they who follow the way we have just described, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, you know, the narrow way for him is really the way of the Beatitudes. And again, it is to take this path that has Christ as its focus and where one's identity is so rooted in love that we are able to bear all of those things. Again, not, not just through a raw endurance, a kind of white knuckling of things, but because we are clinging to he who is life, that we can endure those things, that, that we know the presence of Christ within us. And that is what gives us consolation. And that we learn that consolation follows desolation. So when we go through these experiences in our life and experience all the things that he talks about here, they, the pain that they cause eventually give way, gives way to the consolation of grace. 
that when we, when we seek to be humble when insulted, or we seek to return love for cr criticism, that the fruit of that within the human heart is a deep consolation to us. Sometimes we don't know that, or maybe we've rarely tasted that because, you know, what we give ourselves over to is the bitter food that all these things produce within, within us. That's what we're consuming on a day-to-day -day basis. So never taste the consolation and the sweetness of the love of the Lord, but we're constantly consuming the bitterness of you know, what the world throws in, into our lap. And I think, you know, again, when we turn away from Christ or turn for other ways to escape that, we simply find ourselves empty. So it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, as you go through this, you begin to see that what they found in detachment was greater attachment to Christ and that which was enduring. And the emptiness that they experienced in letting go of the things of the world, they began to experience the fullness of the gifts of God, you know, the enduring love, the joy, the peace of the kingdom. And that's why they could tell people to run towards this when, when you feel the call to, to it, because it is the pearl of great price. And to run towards it again, not just to the desert, but this, the, the desert in the city. You know, that we run to he who is reality in our day-to-day -day life and we cling to him while letting go of those things that we so often form our identity around. Think about it. You know, there are relationships that we have that really shape and form our identity and in so often in negative ways or in toxic ways. And sometimes it's because we've given too great a weight to that relationship, you know, and the, the one that really can give us identity, peace, and joy, we've neglected for years or maybe never had that with Christ. And so how can we experience anything but bitterness and resentment toward the other who cannot be God for us, but sometimes treats us not even as a human being. And how can we not experience the greatest of bitterness and sorrow in the face of that? The only thing that frees us from that is Christ himself. And so whatever it takes to be able to experience that is worth it, they're telling us here. So that brings us to 8.30, and, you know, we're not finished with the step, but that's okay. We'll, we'll pick it up there next week. There's, we certainly have a lot to think about. Many mic drop moments. So, uh, you know, feel free to go back and look it over. If you have thoughts or comments, send them to me or bring them next week as well. Anthony wrote, monastic and curmudgeon are two distinct and different modes of life. I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm pretty good at being the curmudgeon. Uh, but yeah, I, you're, you're right. You know, I think uh, often people have that view, though, that it has to be, you know, the stern, angry looking monk, the curmudgeon. And it's because they've given up all these things in the world. And the opposite should be true. They should be the most joyful beings if they're living it fully. And there have been some that I've experienced who do live it fully. There's a group of passionist nuns here in Pittsburgh. They're the most hidden, or what am I trying to say here? The, the, the uh, sort of the, like the best but most hidden thing here in the diocese. You know, they're up in the hills of Pittsburgh here. No, very few people know about them but they're, they're living so fully at the foot of the cross and living their vocation so fully. I'd say they're exemplars of the passionist life. But when you go in there, you can hear audibly their laughter from back in the cloister. They're, they're such a joyful community. And, it's, and you know what's interesting about it is that they don't have this big spread of land 
you know, all this has grown up around them in Pittsburgh and they have, they have this bricked up little enclosure that is like about 60 by 60 in the middle of the city and buses go by and you think, oh my gosh, how could they live here? This would be like a prison. You know, it's like a penitentiary, but they're the most joyful women that I've ever encountered. And when you talk to them, their, the, the wisdom and the depth of the, their knowledge of Christ is extraordinary. And this should be true for all of us as Christians. The closer that we draw to Christ, the deeper that joy should become. Eric Chastain, uh-oh. Honestly, I seem curmudgeonly when everyone around me is saying obscene things, and I have to tell them that they are doing wrong. Well, the, I understand that, but that's a little bit different than I think what we we're talking about here, you know, which is the life in Christ is something that should produce joy. The, the fruit of that relationship is joy. And I think that's what makes me so confident in that community and even sending young women to them that I have no question in my mind, if, there, if there's somebody I think that has the emotional and spiritual maturity to enter into that life, I will, I will say go there because they are exemplars of these truths. Okay, so why don't we wrap up there uh, and close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May only God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless.